The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. Jesus and his disciples went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Pray with me, please. God, meet us. Meet us here in this text, in this very ancient story. Um, show us what it can mean for our lives, but most of all, help us to see Jesus and to even meet Jesus again in a new way. That'll be meaningful for us even this week ahead. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, good morning again, City Church. You know, I have said a few times in the past um, that we don't really get to pick our sermon passages at City Church, at least not, not most of the time. And like many churches around the world, we usually follow what's called the Revised Common Lectionary, the RCL for short. And sometimes what happens when you're preaching is you pull what I've called the RCL short straw. Like when you realize about this time last week that this week, January 31st, 2021, is Demon Sunday. And not just here at City Church, like many, many churches around the world are wrestling with this text this morning and pastors are working to find new ways to understand it. But you know, this is actually a topic um, I've spent a surprisingly sizable part of my life trying to unravel and make sense of. And I don't think I've ever shared all of this yet at a, at a sermon, at least, in City Church. But you see, as a kid, I was raised in a very Pentecostal setting. And to make it even more interesting, my, my grandfather was a fairly well-known leader in those movements in the 70s and in the 80s. And he had, he had one very specific ministry specialty, like, like very specific. And that would be exorcism. Exorcism, for real. I even pulled a couple books of his just out to, to prove it. Um, I don't know if you can see these, but right here I've got a manual for spiritual warfare by Don Basham. That was my grandfather. Um, that was like in the 60s or 70s. And then here, um, this might be the most famous book of his, which and this is not a book promo. I'm not suggesting it at all for him. But I want you to see this. This is Deliver Us From Evil. This is a newer a newer edition of it that came out even recently. And uh, on the cover, which you probably can't see, is there's there's a gargoyle, which is sitting on top of Notre Dame Cathedral, looking over Paris. It's really spooky and scary, but it's it's Paris. And so I look at that and I'm thinking, um, deliver us from, from Paris, it's deliver us from evil. Um, but here's the thing, for many years, my granddad's ministry was actually a very big part of my family life. And there's one memory that stands out more than any other. You just got to bear with me for a minute. It was the summer of 87. I was about 12 years old. And there was this huge Pentecostal charismatic conference in New Orleans, Louisiana. 
people from all over the world was, was there. It was, it was gigantic. It was held in a superdome. I mean, that's how big it was. And there were exciting and inspirational worship services. There were reports from all over the world. A lot of it was great, but my granddad had a very specific role at this conference. And that was to lead what I can only really describe as um, mass deliverance services, mass deliverance services, like mass exorcisms, like, like a thousand people at a time in a huge breakout room off to the side of the Superdome. And the thing is, and this is what's, what's just crazy about it, it was a remarkably structured event. My, my granddad would stand on the stage like super calm and teach a little of his own view of spiritual powers and spiritual oppression, and then lead people through a liturgy of sorts, a, a very set, kind of set prayers, um, prayers to be freed from specific types of, of demons, usually tied to various ailments or addictions or fears. And that's where it would often get really interesting because invariably a certain percentage of those people in the room would have very physical reactions to these prayers, kind of like the man in our passage today. And they would shake or cry out or even, and this is gross, I'm sorry, or even like throw up a little bit. Okay, it's kind of gross. Now, this was all clearly explained ahead of time by my granddad. It's like, be calm. This is just part of what happens when, when a demon makes its exit. It's just all part of it. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. But, but my job at this event, and, and that's the kicker, is 12-year-old Jonathan had a job, an assigned job at this event. My job was to walk around this room of a thousand or so potentially demon-possessed people armed with, with, with a giant roll of paper towels, a giant roll of paper towels. And if I saw someone, you know, coughing or throwing up a little, you know, because of the demons, um, I'd cautiously go up, 12-year-old, and just, you know, sir, w- would you like a paper towel? And the crazy thing is because he was my granddad, and because this was my life, it all sort of made sense to me at the time. It honestly didn't seem that weird at the time. I mean, it seems incredibly weird now, but not at the time. But I will say, I will say, and, and you can ask my wife about this, that those events may may have led to a type of spiritual disturbance in my life of sorts. And it, it did in some ways because I developed what I can only describe as a very strong attachment to paper towels. Very strong attachment to paper towels, even to this day. And it's it's embarrassing because, you know, paper towels are bad for the environment. And Kristen won't let me buy many, hardly ever. But to this day, I just love a good roll of paper towels. A quality roll has to be a good roll. And the cheap rolls, those are those are from the devil. Um, so not those ones. They fall apart. But a quality roll of paper towels and maybe you know, little Windex, you can solve half the world's problems. And apparently you can even clean up demon demon goo in New Orleans when you're 12. So here's, here's where I need to quickly turn this ship around and get back into the text for today. But my reason for sharing the story is, A, it's true. It really happened and it's weird. And you need to know um, a little bit about me and what how I approach a text like this. But I've also, and this is important, I've also talked with many of you about things like this. And I know when a church like ours comes to a passage like the one we have today, 
some of us are 100% convinced in the existence of spirits, just like the one that shows up in our passage today. And some of us are 100% convinced that this is all just an ancient attempt to describe you know, purely psychological phenomena. And honestly, after a lifetime of, or at least half a lifetime of sorting out these things, I think there are elements of truth to both positions. I do believe, I'll talk about this some as we go along, I do believe the spiritual world is very, very real. But in our passage today, it shows up in a particular first century kind of way. We'll talk about that a bit too. I also believe human beings are fascinatingly complex, are spiritually attuned, and we store energy and trauma in our bodies in very particular ways. And sometimes something that is purely a major psychological breakthrough can unlock some very extreme physical reactions. And it's just the way we're built. And so the challenge for us, I think, as a, as a modern, spiritually-minded people, particularly as followers of Jesus and of, of these scriptures, is to simultaneously make enough room in our logical minds to embrace the spiritual world presented in our passage today, but also to not become overly obsessed with the spirits themselves. In the opening preface to the Screwtape Letters, a pretty famous book by C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis puts it very well. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors, two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You know, following on this, there's a, there's a Catholic Dominican scholar named Richard Woods whose work in this realm I really respect. And I'd be happy to refer some of that to you guys if you're interested. But he says um, something very similar. Thinking and looking at the issue of angels and demons, and he's talking a little bit more about angels here, so you know, it's a little bit happier topic. He says, what are we to make of such claims in the Bible? If we dismiss them as mere literary devices or even illusions, we may run the risk of reducing some of the most significant strands of biblical witness to the status of folklore and fairy tale. There are fables and poetry and plenty of literary devices in the Bible, but beyond them, and in the face of the text, there is something else, a belief rooted in experience that affirms we are involved in a divine drama in which players other than human beings have important parts. That people encounter such beings at moments when they're in need of vital information, of guidance, and of assistance as emissaries of God. And again, he's mostly talking about angels here. These messengers are important, not in themselves, not in themselves, but in their service and in their message. It's not the existence of angels that is revealed, but the will and care of God for us. And so I would apply that here to say that it's not the existence of the demon in this passage that is actually Mark's main point, but the authority and love of a Jesus, of the Jesus, who liberates us from all types of spiritual and physical oppression. I mean, you simply cannot understand the Gospel of Mark or much of the New Testament without seeing that Jesus, the Messiah, 
comes on the scene announcing a new spiritual kingdom, a spiritual revolution, as it were, and the opposing forces, the spirits of empire, of religious stagnation, of religious exclusion, of abuse of power, and even a physical disease, they are forcefully disrupted by Jesus' presence and Jesus' teaching. And in this story, it shows up in a very first century way, very first century kind of way. You know, it's interesting that demons as such um, didn't really exist in the Old Testament. They're not there in the Old Testament, not in the way that we think of them now or later on in the New Testament. But in the 200 years or so before Jesus arrived, what scholars often call the intertestamental period between the two testaments, the Jewish religion took on a much more particularized view of angels and demons. Um, And not just them, but many of the surrounding world religions, the whole idea of angels and demons became a much more prominent topic. And, And the Jewish believers at the time believed that these were direct and personal actors in the lives of human beings, causing psychological torment and particularly causing physical disease. And part of the growing messianic expectation was that the Messiah, whoever that would be, the Messiah would arrive and deliver Israel, not just from general political or spiritual oppression, but would also clear out the unclean spirits that filled the land. And so Mark, in this gospel, really emphasizes Jesus' role, and particularly Jesus' overwhelming authority in freeing people from unclean spirits. And he usually calls them unclean. Usually he says they are unclean. He doesn't usually refer to them as evil. We'll talk about that some um, as we go along. But in Mark's gospel, this is is the first miracle Jesus performs. It's the very first thing he does in a miraculous kind of way in this gospel. And it involves a demon that shows up at a worship service. I mean, think about that. The first thing that happens in Mark's gospel, the first miracle is Jesus uh, confronting and casting out a demon at a worship service in the synagogue on the Sabbath. I mean, the, the demon shows up at church and Jesus is there teaching on this Sabbath day and the people are blown away by his authority because he's not just quoting other teachers or quoting ancient sources. He's speaking on his own authority, unlike any teacher they'd ever heard. And he's teaching on this new revolutionary spiritual kingdom. And while that's happening, an unclean spirit speaks through one of the congregants. And the dialogue is fascinating. He says, what have you to do with us? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And scholars wrestle with this outburst and the particular words and message this demon is trying to convey. What have you to do with us? You know, it's an interesting phrase in the Greek because it's not a question at all. It's more like a terse territorial dismissal. It's like saying, you don't belong here. You are completely out of your element. It's like, get out. And then the spirit goes on to say something else really interesting, something true. The the demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon sees something and says something true about Jesus that ordinary humans can't see yet. But it's really interesting here. The demon is not making a confession of faith at all. It's actually something much more combative. The reason the spirit is making this declaration, it's it's likely an attempted power move, especially 
in the ancient world, and that doesn't quite make sense to us in the same way today, but in the ancient world, and especially in the spiritual realm, the ability to discern and speak someone's true name or identify their true character gave you some power over them. It's almost like the spirit is saying to Jesus, look, Jesus, you have no business here. This domain is ours. And if you think you're here to destroy us, you know, maybe, but I know, I know your real name. I know your real name. I know who you are. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge to Jesus, almost attempting like to intimidate him, to, to move on, to leave. And it fails miserably. Everyone on the scene that day underestimates Jesus' authority. And certainly this spirit does too. And you know, that demon not only underestimates Jesus' authority, but he also underestimates Jesus' love for this poor man who is being tormented. Jesus is not interested in the demon's rhetoric or the demon's tactics. He doesn't even enter the conversation the demon was trying to have at all. Our text simply says Jesus rebuked the spirit, which literally means to put the spirit in its place. He rebuked the spirit and simply says, be silent. And in the Greek, it literally means be muzzled. Jesus, with his word, puts a giant muzzle on that demon's mouth. Jesus doesn't use any special incantation. Jesus doesn't quote scripture at the demon, doesn't invoke some other power or some other authority. He simply speaks on the power of his own authority, of his own word. Be silent, come out of him, and it's enough. It's immediately effective. The man shakes, the man cries out, the spirit leaves leaves him alone. And then when I play that story out in my, my mind, a 12-year-old boy runs over to hand this man a paper towel. But no, that's not in the text at all. What the text says is they were all amazed. They're all amazed and they kept on asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So the crowd was amazed, and Jesus' fame grows. But I want to emphasize one additional point this morning that's often overlooked in this passage. Because Jesus not only scores a knockout blow to a demon using nothing more than the power of his own word, Jesus is also healing and liberating this oppressed human being and restoring him to full community. You see, Mark uses that word unclean instead of evil, unclean for a reason. It refers to ritual uncleanness. And it's a major emphasis in Mark's gospel here and plenty of other places. Because in that day, in that culture, if you were unclean, you couldn't get close to God at all. And you couldn't be in full community with your neighbors. And all sorts of things can make you unclean. It was really hard to deal with a sickness not washing your hands the right way simply touching the wrong thing you know if you're a woman getting your period you know it's just crazy like many many things could make you unclean and in fact just a few verses later jesus heals a leper he heals a leper from what's a bacterial infection but if you look at the words the the leper begs jesus to make him clean so Mark's gospel pays especially close attention to the work of Jesus as 
the liberator, as the liberator from this oppressive system of shame and exclusion. It's not just that the spirit was bad or evil. It made this man unclean, and Jesus was here to liberate him from that stigma and to restore him again to full full community, to make him whole. So, what's the application for us? In 2021, in San Francisco, or wherever you're joining us from today, you know, how do we apply an ancient story like this? Now, I, I wrestled with this a little bit, and part of this from my own background in this, but the first thing I would say from this passage is we need to believe Jesus' authoritative word in our own lives. We need to believe Jesus' authoritative word in our own lives. Mark's emphasis is on Jesus' authority to liberate. The unclean spirit uses manipulation and twists truth to torment the human being and tries to outwit Jesus. And Jesus simply commands the spirit to be silent and to leave. So for us, in just a very simple way, where might Jesus be saying, be silent to a voice of shame or discouragement in your own life? You know, in pandemic life, we spend a lot more time alone by ourselves. There's a lot more opportunity to to ruminate, to get stuck in your thoughts. There's a lot more space for the voices of insecurity or of self-condemnation to grow. So this is an important time of life to intentionally, purposely, daily incorporate Jesus' authoritative word in your own internal self-talk. To remember that Jesus who says, you are beloved. You are gifted and you have a future joined to God and to God's spirit's work in this world. And sometimes, sometimes you need others to help remind you of Jesus' authoritative word in your life as well. So you might need to reach out if if you're going through a darker time, if you've been stuck and lost in your own thoughts, you might need to reach out to a counselor, a pastor, a trusted friend to help remind you of what Jesus truly says about you into you. And City Church is here. We're certainly here for you, if that's the case. But second, and I think this is important, our passage today reminds us that we need to cultivate an awareness of the spiritual in our lives. We need to cultivate an awareness of the spiritual realm in our lives. Now, I don't spend much time thinking about demons, per se, and I don't really see the details of the spiritual landscape in quite the same way my grandfather did, or exactly through the same first century lens our passage uses this morning. I see some things a little bit differently, and I'm learning and changing and all that all the time, but I do, I do strongly believe, and I want you to hear this, I strongly believe that all of Scripture teaches that we there are indeed higher and lower spiritual energies at play in our lives and throughout the whole world, and that God has imbued human beings with an amazing capacity to sense these spirits and to align our souls, to align our creativity, to align our work, to align our prayers in ways that can cooperate and even co-create with the liberating spirit of Jesus in the world. And this has implications for everything, for everything, for our friendships, for our families, for our marriages, for our vocational lives, for everything. But it's, it's a discipline. It's something we have to work at. 
We have to cultivate it because if we don't, it's just too easy to grow complacent and cynical, you know, to turn inward, to develop a very small self-protective world, to even get kind of tribal in our communities and our beliefs. The second, or the writer of the second letter to the Corinthians encourages us to keep our eyes on the spirit, to be spiritual beings. He says, the writer says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. So there's an invitation there to draw near and to rely and to gaze upon, to contemplate the Holy Spirit of God, to make that part of your life and to see things through a spiritual lens. But there's one more thing I want to say just briefly, that as we cultivate this general spiritual awareness and reliance on the Holy Spirit, we need to develop the spiritual discernment to see where oppressive spiritual forces have taken hold even in our own institutions, our own communities, or our own cultural narratives. We need the discernment to to do some self-reflection in our own communities, our own institutions, our own cultural narratives to see where oppressive spirits have taken hold. Now, I'll be very, very brief here, but as time goes on, I tend to see the demonic not so much from the perspective of individual demons, like with horns and wings, harassing individual people. I'm not saying that couldn't possibly exist, but that's not what I mostly see. I tend to see the demonic mostly pronounced in what the Bible calls principalities and powers. Now these are, these are transpersonal oppressive forces that can influence entire nations, large systems, and even like multiple generations. They're deeply cultural, and they're too big for any one person to overcome on their own, and they often take generations to to dismantle, generations to dismantle. These are things like slavery, like systemic racism, like American exceptionalism, like unbridled capitalism that leads to huge inequities, and yes, like wild conspiracy theories, such as QAnon, that deceive hundreds of thousands of otherwise productive citizens and infuses many of them with such lies and such a frenzy that they stormed our capital just a few weeks ago. You know, it's not a stretch at all to say what happened on January 6th was demonic. And the videos and the reports of the crazed nature of that mob shows this. You know, the mob, and this isn't a political thing, any mob, is almost by definition demonic. But it can happen anywhere. So we need to be sober-minded. And we need to be willing to constantly interrogate our own beloved institutions, our own beloved cultures and belief systems regularly, constantly, constantly lifting them up to the spirit of Christ, to the Jesus that wishes to liberate. And you know, Richard Rohr, Richard Rohr says that anything we idolize, anything we idolize, can soon become demonic. Anything we hold above criticism or too great for criticism will soon become demonic. But where the spirit of Christ is, 
where the spirit of Christ truly is, there is freedom and capacity to change and capacity to repent. So look, I know, I know it's a heavy topic today, but we can rest and we can trust in the spirit of Christ who is always with us. And so in closing, I'm just gonna pray us out briefly with these famous words from Romans 8, where Paul says, no, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.